All right, have you guys ever noticed that social media can give you this weirdly intimate picture of someone without ever actually having met them, right? Okay, I don't know what Gen Z, I don't know what you call it. My generation calls it Facebook stalking, right? But I know Facebook is just for the old heads like me, right? So you guys, I don't know if you call it Insta stalking or Snap stalking. I don't know what you guys, or maybe you guys have microchips. I don't know how it works for Gen Z, but... What happens often is like you go to look at somebody's profile and before you know it, you're on your ex's, mom's, uncle's profile. You know he's really into fly fishing. Like you just get these weirdly intimate pictures of people from their social media without ever meeting them in real life, which then makes it awkward for you when you do actually meet them in real life, okay? Like, even for me, I'm going to open this Pandora's box. Don't you open this Pandora's box, but if you went to my Facebook and you went through and you looked at the pictures, you're going to find this phase, and this was a bad phase of mine, where I wore runner shorts to the beach, okay? I don't know why I did this. I, I think they were the shorts on hand at the time. I don't know, but there's a phase where I'm wearing runner shorts at the beach. And the reason why I don't want you to open this Pandora's box is because if you go and you look at these pictures, you're going to have this weirdly intimate picture of my thighs, okay? You're going to know, you're going to know my thighs in a way you shouldn't know my thighs, okay? Don't go. I know some of you are going, I'm going to this profile right now. Don't do it to yourself. It's not worth it. You'll never be able to look at me the same. And so social media does this thing where you get this weirdly intimate picture of people that you've never met. Now, we've been in the book of John. We've been in the gospel of John off and on over the last year. And we're in John chapter 13 today. And we started John chapter 13 last week. And what we saw in John chapter 13 is we begin to get this intimate picture of Jesus with his disciples. He's no longer amongst the crowds, teaching to the crowds, and doing miracles amongst the crowds. He's with his disciples in this intimate setting where last week we saw Jesus wash the disciples' feet. And what we're going to see over these coming chapters, these, these hours before Jesus goes to the cross, is Jesus is pouring his heart out to his disciples. He keeps sharing with them the things that matter most to him, or at least some of the things that matter most to him. And we get this intimate picture of Jesus in the hours leading up to his death. The difference between John 13 in particular and and social media is God wants us to have this weirdly intimate picture of Jesus. God allowed John to write this down and see all that he saw so that we could get this intimate picture of Jesus, so that we could get to know Jesus more. And so here's my hope for today, where we're going to go today. We're going to be in a part of John 13, and we're just going to go through it together, look at different things. Really, as we go through it together, my hope is to just see the scene and really to see Jesus, to look at Jesus, to see who he is. So we'll do that for a few minutes. And then after that, I want to uh, really uh, hone in on this beloved disciple in the text, the disciple whom Jesus loved, because I think that this beloved disciple shows us a lot. And so there's going to be three different things we look at that this beloved disciple shows us. And so that's what we're going to do today. Let's hop into the text. We're going to be in John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 18. 
It should be on the screen. Just so you guys know, last week, I cut Jesus off mid-sentence, okay? I cut, he was talking to the disciples. I cut him off mid-sentence because it just made more sense. I'm sorry, Jesus, for interrupting you. But we're going to start in verse 18. So if it sounds like, hey, this sounds like you cut him off, I did. I'm sorry, okay? And if you didn't get a chance to go back la- and listen to last week's sermon about Jesus' foot washing, I'd encourage it. Sounds a little vain and conceited since I preached it. I don't mean it that way, okay? You can listen to a different redemption if you want. Uh, and hear what they have to say, but I just think Jesus' foot-washing scene is fundamental to who we are called to be as the church, okay? It's not just a beautiful, nice scene. It's, some, it's something that's core to our identity as his people, okay? And so that's why I would encourage to go back and look at that. So Jesus washes the disciples' feet last week, and as he's washing their feet, or after he finishes, he goes, listen, you're called to do this. You're called to serve one another, to lower yourself in the way that I've lowered myself for you in this moment. So go and do likewise in the world. And he said, blessed are you if you do this. And then that's where we pick up in verse 18. So uh, it says this. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Let's pause there for a bit. So Jesus says, hey, love like I love And then he begins to talk about, hey, but one of you is going to betray me. One of you in this room, one of you 12, one of my close friends that have been spending the last three years with doing everything, basically. One of you is going to betray me. And and Jesus, (laughs) he says, hey, the only reason I'm telling you this is so that you would believe. I love this about Jesus in the the Gospel of John particularly. He often tells the disciples something. He goes, why are you telling them that? And Jesus goes, it's because I want to deepen your belief. When these things happen, I want to deepen your trust in me. Often we don't see God for the relational God he is. He wants to deepen relationship with his disciples. And so he tells them about this betrayer. And he says, hey, this is coming up. You're going to see it unfold. And I want you to see it unfold and know that it's true so that you can trust me more. So you can believe in me more deeply. And so Jesus tells them about this betrayer. He gives a little nod to the Trinity in, in verse 20. And then it says that Jesus was deeply troubled. I love these little details about Jesus we get in this intimate scene. Jesus is God in the flesh. And yet God in the flesh is deeply troubled. He's deeply troubled by the fact that one of his friends is about to betray him. That scripture prophesied about, that he himself has now prophesied about. He's deeply troubled that one of his friends is about to betray him. What we're seeing here is not an act. What we're seeing here is the humility of God in the flesh. 
God so lowered himself to meet us, to greet us, so that we could be in relationship with him, that this scene where a friend is about to betray him, and just like it would hurt any one of us and trouble any one of us, it troubles Jesus. He's fully man and fully God. And we see the humility of God in that. Let's keep going in the passage. Verse 22. So Jesus said, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered him, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Let's pause there again. So the Jesus is like, again, kind of going, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And, and the disciples just kind of look at each other like, who, oh, who is it going to be? Who, who is it? They start having dinner. We, see, we hear about this disciple at, who, whom Jesus loved at Jesus' side, which we'll talk more about in a bit. It's, it's John. And Peter kind of whispers over to John, right? I think that Peter hears this thing about betrayal, and Peter knows himself well enough to go, maybe it's me. <laughs> like, maybe I'm the betrayer. And I just love, I, I, that's, I'll always think that, that Peter was going, hey, I, I think it could be me. And so he goes to John, who's next to Jesus. He's like, hey, ask him who it is. I, I just, I'm wondering. <laughs> like, it would be cool to know. And... And so John just turns to Jesus and just goes, hey, who, who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus says, hey, it's who I'm going to hand this morsel of bread to. And so Jesus dips the bread, hands it to Judas. And John and, and probably Peter know that Judas is the betrayer. Judas, one of the 12, who's been with them for three years, who was the tre the, like the team treasurer, who held the money bag, who, who paid for things. This guy is about to betray them, and, and Jesus reveals that at least to John and, and probably to Peter as well. There's something interesting about this scene. When, when, John, when it says that John, there's a few things interesting actually, but one of the things is John is laying at Jesus' side. Did you see that there? It says that John is laying at Jesus' side. If you look in your footnotes, if you, even if you have an ESV Bible, in the Greek, it actually says, in the bosom of Jesus. So John is so close to Jesus that he's laying on Jesus' chest. Okay? This is not the point to my sermon, but for those of you obsessed with biblical masculinity, here's a picture of it for you. Two guys cuddling. Okay? Oh, that makes us uncomfortable. No, that's Jesus. <laughs> And one of his disciples cuddling. Okay? Uh, that's a different sermon for a different day. But so you, you see this closeness between John. and He refers to himself as this disciple whom Jesus loved. And you really kind of see that playing out in this scene. And then you see Judas where there's this kind of contrast between them. Judas is this betrayer. And yet Jesus does this thing where he hands Judas this morsel of bread first. Which to us we just go, okay, this was Jesus' like little way to like... Show, every, show John, at least, that he's the betrayer. But at a dinner like this that they were at, this was actually a sign of honor. Jesus was giving Judas 
the first piece of bread, the first morsel of bread. And this was what dinner hosts did to honor their guests. And different theologians who have looked at who's sitting where in the room, we know John's sitting there in the room, and they've looked at these different scenes and tried to figure out where people are sitting. A lot of them come to the conclusion that Judas is sitting right to the right of Jesus, which was also the place of honor. And the only reason I point this out is Jesus is loving Judas to the end. He's showing you his honor by giving him this morsel of bread first. And he's showing you his honor more than likely by letting him sit next to him. No wonder the disciples didn't suspect Judas. Because Jesus was not treating Judas like he was a betrayer. He was treating Judas like he was a beloved. He was honored. This is who Jesus is. He loves to the end, as the beginning of chapter 13 says. Let's keep going. Uh, we'll be in verse 27 now. Then, so Simon or, or Judas just got the uh, morsel. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Jesus gives the bread to Judas, and something spiritually significant happened to him. Satan, the being that's against God and all of his ways, who helped in humans' first rebellion, he enters Judas. Right, as I study this, it just means like possession, okay? Like he possessed Judas in some way. I don't know if it was a partial possession, a whole possession. I don't know a lot about that. I've only seen the exorcist once, okay? I don't know what exactly was going on, but something spiritual was happening here that Judas, I think, probably must have opened himself up to in some way by choosing to do this evil against Jesus. And Jesus just says to him, hey, what? get it over with. What you're going to do, get it over with. Get it done. And the disciples are going, what is he talking about? It was common on Passover, actually, to go out and give to the poor. So some of them thought, oh, maybe that's what Jesus is talking about here. And Judas runs out into the night to begin the betrayal of Jesus, where hours later he would lead a group of temple guards to jump Jesus in the middle of the night to show them where Jesus could be jumped without the crowds getting mad. And so Judas begins his path into the night. Listen, th this sermon could easily be a sermon of like, hey, let's talk about how we all betray God. And let's talk about Judas and how he betrayed God. And, uh, and here's the thing. The truth is we all betray God. Wherever you're at in here, even if you don't believe in God, the fact is we're all betrayers of God. Like, that's how sin works. That's how living contrary to God's, like, will and shalom for the world, things as it should be, that's, that's betrayal. God has created you to be in relationship with him, and to not live in relationship with him is a betrayal. All sin is a betrayal. It could be really easy for me to just kind of go, hey, we're all Judases. Time and time again, we run into the night rather than sit with Jesus. 
I could say, hey, time and time again, think about the things you've opened yourself up to that you know are the ways of darkness rather than the ways of Jesus. That's betrayal. We're no better than Judas. And I, I, I could talk about that all day, but I'd rather talk about the other side of the contrast that we see in this passage. There's this contrast between Judas the betrayer and John the beloved. And, and again, the reason I'm using that word beloved, the one whom Jesus loved, is in the Greek, it's the beloved. And, and you can see why they said one whom Jesus loved in English, because we don't really use that term a lot anymore. But John the beloved is who I want to focus on today. I think John the beloved shows us a lot about our relationship with God, about why did he even use that title. And so I want to spend the, the rest of the sermon just kind of looking at three different things that this beloved disciple shows us, okay? So here's the first thing that the beloved disciple shows us. He shows us what we can have with Jesus. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. The beloved disciple shows us what we can have with Jesus. John and Jesus' relationship here is a picture of what we have because of the gospel. John is laying on Jesus. John can whisper to Jesus and ask him questions. John is physically close to Jesus. He's intimately close to Jesus. This is what we can have because of the gospel. The gospel is this, the good news that even though this world got messed up because of what we did and how we brought sin into the world, even though that happened, God, the creator king, has come in the flesh to restore everything, to fix it all, to bring justice, to, do, to make our relationship right with God. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can be right with God. But the beloved disciple shows us the gospel is not just about being right with God. The gospel is about being with God. Right? The gospel is not just like, look, here's your ledger. You're going to go to hell if you, you've sinned in all these ways. That's, not, that's part probably of the gospel. But the gospel says you, the real prize of all of this is you get to be with God. You get a relationship with God. That's the prize of the gospel. And John, the beloved disciple, shows us that's what we get. John and Jesus are embodying the gospel physically for us to see. Maybe, maybe this freaks you out a little bit. Going, Anthony, you're talking about cuddling with Jesus. I don't know. This is weird. Listen, Jesus wants to take you into the furthest depths of God's love. And if that freaks you out, fine. It doesn't necessarily have to look like cuddling. But Jesus wants to take you into the furthest depths of God's love. He wants you to be in the depths of God's love. He wants you to experience himself in a way you can't without him doing something. That's what the beloved disciple shows us. You know that phrase we looked at where, you know, where it says that John was... In the bosom of Jesus. There's one other time in the Gospel of John where this phrase is being used. It's John chapter 1, verse 18. And it's talking about how the Son of God is in the bosom of the Father of God. 
So what John the Beloved is showing us as he enters the scene for the first time in this gospel is what we can have with God is what the Son has with the Father. Isn't that incredible? That's the beauty of the gospel. There's a lot of beautiful things about the gospel, but one of the most beautiful things about the gospel, at least in my opinion, is that we get to be reconnected to God. That we get to be so close to him that we lay in his bosom. That we get to be so close to him that our relationship with God can be like the son of God's relationship with the father. Isn't that wild? That's what John, the beloved disciple, has with Jesus. So if this stuff freaks you out, get over yourself. Like, this is what God wants to have with you, and deep down, that's what you want. Deep down, that's what each of us want. Each of us are clawing and looking for this sort of intimacy and love that we can only truly and wholly find in relationship with Jesus. That's what you really want. You want pleasure. You want family. You want friendship. You want companionship. You want all those those things. Those are all good gifts of God that will be in the resurrection. But you can only truly find the deepest version of those things in a relationship with God. That's what the beloved disciple shows us. The prize of the gospel is God, not heaven. The prize of the gospel is God himself. Each of us in here were created to be in relationship with God. And the good news is Jesus makes it possible for that to happen. That we could be in the bosom of Christ. And I keep using that awkward phrase because I think it really shows how intimate our relationship with Jesus can be. Because of the gospel. That's what we get. That's what John shows us that the gospel gives us. That's what we can have with Jesus. That's where we can find all that we long for. Is at Jesus' side. In his bosom. Alright? There's a second thing that the, the, the beloved shows us. It, it shows us this. is His identity is found in Jesus' love. The beloved disciple shows us, the one whom Jesus loves, that disciple shows us that his identity is found in Jesus' love. Right? It might be kind of conceited to refer to yourself as the one whom Jesus loved, right? Like the, the other 11 disciples, or 10 really, disciples reading this later go, hey John, um, interesting title you gave yourself, right? It sounds... It sounds conceited, but as I did more study on this and I looked at different theologians and what they were look, looking at, it, it was quite the contrary. John wasn't trying to be conceited. He just knows that he's going to be part of a lot of the events unfolding after this, and he knows he's going to refer to his name, and rather than refer to his name, the way he wants to introduce himself onto the scene is by calling himself the one whom Jesus loved. The foundation for John's life the foundation for his introduction of himself is not anything he's done, where he's been, how holy he is, how great of a disciple he is. The foundation for John is how much Jesus loves him. He wasn't trying to say, hey, I'm the one he, Jesus loved more than the others, necessarily. He was trying to say, listen, the, 
my identity is wrapped up in the fact that Jesus loves me. So the beloved disciple shows us also where our identity should be founded in or founded on. Imagine if the foundation for our identities as a people, as the church, was founded in the fact that Jesus loved us. Like imagine if that was our identity. If someone said, hey, tell me a little bit about who you are. I'm like, well, Jesus loves me. Like that sounds crazy at first, but what if that is what kind of fueled us? If that, what if that is how we thought of ourselves? What if that is how we identified ourselves? What if that was the foundation for our identity? How would it change us? Imagine how life-altering it could be if that was our identity. That we were a people loved by Jesus. Like, ask yourself this. Like, how, do you, how do you identify yourself? How do you find your identity? Honestly, most of us are confused about who we are or we define ourselves by like different things we've inherited, whether it's, you know, like from our parents or family or friends or whatever. Or we define ourselves by preferences we have or things we're chasing or even the culture that, that grew up around us. And listen, those things are part of your, are, they are part of your identity. And I think even some of those things God wants to be part of your identity. But those things shouldn't be foundational to your identity. For us who have been loved by Jesus, the foundation of our identity is that. We've been loved by Jesus. What if our lives were fueled by and centered on the unending, unfathomable, no height or depth to unbreakable love of God? What if that's what centered our lives? What if that's what fueled us? It would utterly change how we exist in the world. It would be harder to feel empty and lonely. We still might feel empty and lonely, but it would be harder to. Or we, at the very least, have a hope that one day we won't anymore because of Jesus and the resurrection. It would be harder to damage ourselves with the pains and pleasures of this world if we found our identity in Jesus' love for us. If we found our identity in Jesus' love for us, the people around us would get to experience the love of God through us. That's insane. Like if our identity is found in that the fact that Jesus loves us, people in our life would experience the love of God through us. That's crazy, but that's what would begin to happen. If that's where we found our identity, I think we would tr feel truly free for maybe the first time in our lives and loved. The beloved shows us that our identity can be and should be found in the fact that Jesus loves us. He loved us first. God is love. The beloved shows us that that's where we find our identity, church, in the love of God. Okay? Okay, what's this? Let's look at the final thing that the beloved disciple shows us. He shows us this. He shows us a posture that makes himself less for Jesus' glory. 
He shows us a posture that makes himself less for Jesus' glory, for anything that can point to Jesus and the reality of Jesus and the weightiness of Jesus. He makes himself less to do this. The other reason some people think that John refers to himself in this way of being the one whom Jesus loved is because he's kind of trying to take uh, like the backstage in the scene. He wants the focus to be on Jesus. Not this disciple at Jesus' side. He wants the focus to be on Jesus. And so he's kind of taking a backstage by giving uh, giving himself this sort of title, which, you know, when I meet John, he'll probably be mad at how I structured this sermon then because of that. But he's essentially saying, hey, I've got to be less, and Jesus has to be more. Right? This is a theme in the Gospel of John already. John the Baptist, a different John, said, hey, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. And so the beloved disciple possibly uses this title to say, hey, listen, I'm not a person. That, no, actually, what he's saying is, hey, I'm just a person in Jesus' story. And he's not saying, Jesus is just a person in my story. That's what the beloved disciple is trying to say. The day each of us realize that God's glory is something we were made to point to as humans is actually a freeing day. It spits in the face of everything our culture says to do, like say and do, right? Like it spits, like our culture says, no, you're the main character. You're the best. And the gospel says, hey, listen, Jesus loves you so much. You're his child. But this whole universe, was made to point to him and point to his glory. And it's incredibly freeing when we realize that because then we begin to realize what we were created for. So let let me put it like this. Are you someone in part of King Jesus' grand story of everything or is Jesus just a side character in your story? Like be honest with yourself. Are you someone in King Jesus' grand story of everything, of the universe? Or is Jesus, you know, just a side character in your story? Great side character. The best side character, but his side character. Be honest with yourself. What is true for you? The message throughout the New Testament is Jesus is not the side character. He's the main character. He's who we're all created to point to. And the reason we have a lot of problems in our life is because, in fact, we resist pointing to him and giving him glory. Like, Think about yourself, and I'm not saying this is the reason this happens, but do you find yourself time and time again, like, you just can't do this Christianity thing? Like, you know the tenets, maybe you even grew up in the church, and you're just like, time and time again, I fail. Time and time again, I can't do this. One, the good news is that's the point. You can't. You need Jesus and his spirit in order to walk this out well. But two, maybe the reason it's been hard for you to walk out this Christianity thing is because Jesus is just a side character for you. Listen, if the main propelling of your life is you as the main character in your glory and the things you seek after, then yes, it's going to be hard to follow Jesus. Yes, you're going to fail time and time and time again. Jesus is the main character. And just to be clear, there's a lot of reasons 
we fail time and time again in following him. Basically sin, and we all do that. But I think one of the reasons could be that a lot of us, the way we treat Jesus in our life is he's a side character. I'm the main character. He's the side character. And you go, Anthony, I would never think that. Well, maybe you should because then you'd be able to admit that and repent from it. We, each and every one of us were created to point to Jesus, to give him glory. That's what we were created for. And yet each and every one of us is loved with the ferocity of a main character loving his own children. Like, the, like we get the love of the main character anyways. I think the sooner we realize that Jesus is the main character, the sooner life, it, it's just going to feel less frustrating for you. Like the, the mundane parts of life, the tedious parts of life, the parts of life you're like, why am I doing this again? those will all of a sudden become a joy because you'll realize that even in the mundane, and I would argue especially in the mundane, you can point to the glory of Jesus. That I I would argue that when we begin to realize that we were made to point to Jesus' glory, that you'll be living with purpose unlike you've ever had before. Like you'll be going, man, all of my life has purpose. All of my life has meaning. Every tedious part, every mundane part, even the suffering, all of it has meaning. Because it can point to the glory of Jesus through it. That's what begins to happen when we realize that we were created to bring Jesus glory. That's what the Beloved shows us. The Beloved shows us a lot. He shows us what we can have with Jesus, an intimate, deep, connected relationship. The beloved shows us where our identity can and should be found in his love. And he shows us that life, all of life, is about Jesus' glory. More of us have, or most of us, have more in common with Judas than we care to admit. Jesus has shown us love, and honor, and pursuit. But we'd rather run into the night and do our own thing. The beloved shows us a better way. The beloved shows us life with Jesus is better than all that. I promise you, Jesus is better than whatever it is you want to pursue. I promise you. I'm not going to say... Following Jesus and choosing Jesus is easier than whatever those other pursuits are that you want, but I promise you, he's better. And even if you live a whole life not really quite grasping it, one day you will in the resurrection. Jesus is better than any pursuit that we could have. He is the chief pursuit. And the beloved disciple shows us how much we can have with Jesus because of the good news of the gospel. Church, may we have all that the beloved disciple has. Amen? Amen. Let's pray for that.